We have been talking for like three weeks. This is our fourth week talking about this guy named Jacob. And some of you might be here for the first time and you're going to feel a little bit like you're getting in midstream. I hope you won't. Um, all you need to know is that Jacob, not the best guy, not the best guy. And he's not a hero, even though he's lifted up as one of the ancestors of Jesus and the grandson of Abraham and, you know, all these guys in the Old Testament, not heroic in terms of their character. And so what does it mean to read the Old Testament? Why do we sit here spending time learning about the Old Testament if all we really, really need to know is that Jesus came and Jesus is love and Jesus reveals God? Then why do we spend this time in the Old Testament? There's a lot to say there, but I, I just want to be clear that at the story, we value the Old Testament as part of the Word of God. It's every bit the Word of God that the New Testament is. It has um, a message for us of grace a message for us of foreshadowing Jesus. You can't really understand Jesus without understanding Jacob. You can't understand the New Testament without understanding the Old. And so there's a lot of worth here, even for those of you who wouldn't even call yourselves Christians yet. It's my wishful thinking, that yet word at the end. Like, but if you're a skeptic or you're not a, necessarily a believer yet, then um, the Old Testament can even open up some doors for you and your understanding of who God really is as well. So this stuff matters, and I'm, I'm glad we're here doing this. Um, so, so far we've been talking about Jacob, who is, I think, by every definition, a, a walking contradiction. So Jacob, uh, on the outside, looks one way, and on the inside, he looks another. Have you ever met anybody like this before? Has anyone come to mind? <laughs> Have you ever felt like this before? Come on, y'all. Like, you feel one way on the inside, but you look a different way on the outside. Jacob, externally, superficially, very successful. He had everything. He had he's a family man. He had a bunch of kids, you know. He had a bunch of livestock, animals, land, which was all like currency of his day. He was successful. Most men, Jacob knew, would have wanted to trade places with Jacob if they could. So he had it all. But on the inside, beneath the surface, he was a mess. He was a disaster on the inside. Why? Because his whole life, he treated people like commodities. He treated people like they were expendable. He spent his whole, the first half of his life um, burning bridges with the people that he was supposed to love, people that he cared about. He burned bridges with his brother Esau. He burned bridges with his father Isaac. He burned bridges with his wife Leah. He burned bridges with his uncle slash father-in-law Laban. It's complicated. If you missed last week, um, he, he had an uncle who was also his father-in-law. But it was, it was rural. I'll just say that. It was a rural arrangement, speaking as someone who comes from the rural south. Uh, but he, he was always burning these bridges. And so... Um, at this point in his life, he's kind of reached midlife, and something is stirring within him. And this is the good news for people that have spent the first part of your life, or maybe up to now, you've been deceptive. Maybe people that have been wronged by you would have some choice words to describe you. Maybe you've been a snake to them or a liar. The good news is you're not beyond redemption. Jacob, even though he had been deceptive, at this point, he is um, starting to sense that his conscience is speaking to him. So at this point, even though he spent his whole life so far burning bridges, now he wants to do something different. And the story we're going to read today is the story of Jacob coming to that point in his life where he's torn between the past he's been living and the future that he wants to live. And so he's trying to shake the demons and the habits and the coping mechanisms of his past that caused him to burn all those bridges, and he's trying to claim a better future. 
But man, that doesn't happen automatically, does it? Wanting it isn't enough. We all want that better future. But man, it's hard to shake those old habits. So we're, we're going to just dive in here to chapter 32 of uh, Jacob's story. It's in Genesis chapter 32. And uh, I'll start in verses 3 through 6. If you have a Bible, you can open it, or you can read on the study guides that you were given when you came in. I hope those are helpful. Or you can just follow along on the screen. I'm going to read it from the screen myself this service. So chapter 32, verses 3 through 6. So Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau. So here's what's happening. Jacob has decided it's time to reconcile with Esau who he's probably done wrong the most, more than anyone else. He's wronged Esau more than anyone. So he wants to make it right. In the land of Seir, the country of Edom, that's Esau's territory, he instructed the messengers, this is what you're to say to my lord Esau, your servant Jacob says, I've been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I'm sending this message to my lord that I may find, that I may find favor in your eyes, and when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> All right, we're going to get there in a second. But first, I just want you to see how Jacob, who spent his life manipulating people, is now torn as he's trying to make amends and trying to smooth it over with Esau, he's still being his same old self. So what Jacob should have said <laughs> through the messengers was, hey man, I'm sorry. <laughs> Plain and simple, my bad. I'm sorry for cheating you out of everything that was coming to you. I'm sorry for lying to our father. I'm sorry for all of it, I'm sorry. He never says I'm sorry, he never admits fault. All he says is, hey, I'm coming to meet you. And then he, he sends these three sort of messages that are, that are there, but you have to look for them. First of all, he says, this whole time, 20 years since we last saw each other, I've been with Laban the whole time. I've been with our uncle Laban. I haven't been wandering around. I haven't been going behind your back. I haven't been sneaking around avoiding you. I've been here with Laban working the whole time. And so he's like, again, kind of trying to cover his tracks a little bit. It's a little bit there, but not a big deal. It gets a little bit worse because then Jacob says, I've got a whole bunch of stuff now. Brother, I'm rich now. And what he wants to say with the part where he says, I've got all these animals and I've got all this stuff, that was the currency of the day. He's like, I'm a self-made man, I'm rich. Here's what's happening there. Jacob safely assumes, and rightly so, that in the 20 years since he was with Esau, their parents died, and they did. And since Jacob's whereabouts were unknown, Jacob rightly assumed that the whole inheritance had fallen to Esau. And so Esau carried all that inheritance, all that stuff. And so what's Esau going to think when Jacob comes to meet him? Esau's going to think Jacob's coming to claim his part of the inheritance. And so Jacob's like, dude, I'm rich. Don't worry about it. I'm good. I'm not coming to get your stuff. I just want to hug, you know, that kind of thing. And again, that's kind of how people who are used to manipulating people think. It's like you're trying to be a step ahead, right? And so uh, the, the third thing um, that he says here is, hey, man, let's bury the hatchet. Let's let bygones be bygones. Again, without an apology. And then uh, Esau's response, not optimal for Jacob. He sends 400 men to Jacob and has Jacob trembling 
because Jacob's bigger, older brother, who's always wanted to kill him, rightfully so, no one blames Esau for feeling that way, now he's got a bigger, stronger army than Jacob can withstand. And so Jacob's back is against the wall. He's terrified. But if you've ever known someone who's spent their whole life moving and shaking and manipulating and outthinking and maneuvering, you know that's when they're at their best or their worst, depending on how you look at it. Like Jacob's back's against the wall, and so he goes to work plotting and scheming a strategy to uh, disrupt his brother Esau in case Esau is, uh, is coming to get him. So this is the strategy. It's in Genesis, same chapter, 32, verses 7 through 21. Y'all can follow along with me. It's a little lengthy, but I promise we'll, we'll unpack it a little bit. So uh, he says, in great fear and distress, back against the wall, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and the herds and the camels as well. And he thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, then the group that's left may escape. There's a strategy. It's just the beginning. And then Jacob prayed. This is interesting. So Jacob's trying to strategize, trying to cover his tracks, his cover his own back a little bit. And then he prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac. Now those two lines, traditional opening to a, an ancient Old Testament prayer. God of my fathers, God of my grandfather, God of my forefathers. Like that's how you just were taught to pray. That was rote, it was standard when it came to prayers. But then Jacob, for the first time in his life, uses a different word for God. For the first time, Jacob refers to God, not as God of my father, God in the sky, God up high. He says Yahweh, which is not just Lord. It is personal in its um, orientation. It is my Lord. And then he speaks more personally about God. Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives. So this gets more relational all of a sudden. I will make you prosper. I am unworthy, Jacob said, of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown to your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan. So when he came to Laban's house, he had only a staff in his hand. But now I've become two camps, very successful. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid that he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. So you, you see, I'll, I'll get to this in a second. It's, you, you see the conflict here. Jacob's like, you're my Lord. I trust you. I love you. But oh, my God. You know, like, there's this conflict. Like, like he, he loves him, but not, he doesn't trust him yet. You know, so there's, there's this in-between land Jacob's in right now. We've all been there. And he said, uh, but you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea. Uh, which cannot be counted. So he's like reminding God of the promises God made to him, just in case God forgot. Uh, <laughs> he's uh, just kind of re-upping there. All right, uh, we got a little bit more. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls. The only reason this matters, they're trying to say this was a haul. Like there, were, there are records of kings that won wars and got less in spoils than what Jacob's giving to Esau right now. This is a bunch of stuff, and it's worth a lot of money. And he put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself. So there's five groups that Jacob has arranged. And he said, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. 
He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau and he is coming behind us. And he also instructed the second and the third and all the others who followed the hurts. Um, you are to do the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts. I am sending them on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him. But he emptied, he, I'm sorry, but he spent himself, he himself spent uh, uh, the night in the camp. All right. So, I can't read. So, um, what's Jacob doing? It would seem that Jacob is just being a, a nice brother trying to smooth it over, sending all these gifts. Listen, if Jacob only wanted to send Esau a bunch of gifts, uh, he could have just sent them all at once. Why did he send them in five different groups? Well, he kind of gave us a hint in the beginning of that passage where he said if the first group is attacked, the other group can retreat, and that's part of it. Scholars think it's even a little more twisted than that. Jacob was really good at, at devising these schemes. Right. So scholars think that he, he split them up into five groups because each time a different group from Jacob's caravan arrived at Esau's camp, the 400 men, if they were in battle formation, they would have to break battle formation, converge on this caravan, figure out who's there, look for Jacob. He's not there. All right, y'all get back in position. And maybe by the fifth time, they'd be so confused, demoralized, weakened, whatever, they'd be less likely to attack with as much ferocity or force. The other thing that's happening here is by the time Esau has all these animals and all these people with him. Um, it's a much noisier uh, group. And so they're not going to be sneaking up on anybody with all these camels and oxen and all this stuff. Like, so he's kind of uh, saddling Esau with a noisy bunch of livestock, different kinds of livestock. And then obviously Jacob's servants are a part of every uh, caravan. And so he's got spies in Esau's camp. So I think we give too much credit to Jacob. We don't think he's being calculating here. Again, God, I trust you. God, thank you for all your promises. Remember those promises? Take care of me. Because he's coming, you know, that kind of thing. And he's still covering his tracks uh, and trying to cover his own bases at the same time. He's a man of, uh, of two minds here. And I, I, think, um, we've all, um, I think we've all been there. I have. Stuck in that place of believing in God but not trusting him. Being a believer, but relying on my own um, intellect, relying on my own plans, making my own strategies, like saying I trust God, but not really giving myself over to him, right? So a lot of us find ourselves at that crossroads um, between who we've been and who we want to be, uh, who we've, how we've trusted God and how we want to trust God. Um, and it just doesn't happen automatically. It takes something else. That something else is illustrated in the last part of today's passage that I'm going to read. This is the end of chapter 32, and this may be the weirdest thing you will ever hear. <laughs> so I hope I don't lose anybody. This is from Genesis 32, verses 22 through 32. Check this out. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. Sounds very Star Wars-y. The ford of the Jabbok. And after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. And so Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. 
Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. And then the man asked, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. And so Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. I told you it was weird. I told you. I tried to warn you. You ever heard anything weirder than that? That's the weirdest wrestling match in history, which is saying a lot because wrestling is weird. Like, I grew up watching Hulk Hogan and the Iron Sheik in Speedos and knee-high boots and nothing else going after each other. And they were all oiled up, you know. And that was less weird than this. This is weirder. And uh, it's hard to decipher what exactly is going on here. What, what kind of struggle is this? Is this, a, is this a physical battle between Jacob and God? It would seem so. At first, every, every art picture or depiction you've ever seen of this story would show a physical struggle, like they're going hand-to-hand combat. And obviously there's a physical component to this story because Jacob is never the same. He comes away with a limp for the rest of his life. Clearly, there's some kind of physical component here, but it's not just a physical battle. In fact, it's not even mostly a physical battle. The only physical um, uh, uh, struggle that's depicted here or illustrated in the story is when God touches Jacob's hip. That's the only time they're, they're actually are said to touch, right? Physically touch, right? So God takes Jacob's hip out of socket to the extent that Jacob is no longer able to walk the same again. But listen, he doesn't take Jacob's hip out of socket by like yanking it or pulling it or pile driving him, you know, like Hulk Hogan or like, you know, stone cold stare or whatever, like none of that stuff. He, he takes Jacob's hip out of socket by just touching it. And the, the actual Hebrew there is brush. He brushed it, just barely even touched it, just boop, and then his hip fell out of socket. Which is to say that if God wanted to physically overcome or destroy Jacob, he could have. If it were really a physical altercation, he could have destroyed him. God had that power. God had that ability. He just, he just boop, his hip out of socket just like that. He could have destroyed him. And yet he didn't. Why? Because there's something more happening. It's not just a physical battle. Jacob has chosen to go to the mat with God in his heart, in his mind, in his spirit. He's wrestling and struggling with God, and he's not letting go. Even though maybe he didn't like what he found, even though maybe he didn't like what God was showing him, even though maybe he didn't like to be reminded of his sin, even though maybe the answers weren't clear and he didn't understand, he didn't let go, he kept struggling, he held on. He said, give me your blessing. And there's so much about this story that's poetic. First of all, Jacob, in order to wrestle with God, had to make himself be alone. Totally alone. No stimulus, no screens, no Netflix, no company, no nothing else. Just Jacob in the darkness, in the silence. When was the last time you actually sat and did nothing? In silent 
stillness. And some of y'all think sitting and doing nothing means streaming Bird Box on Netflix with nobody else around. Like, that's not what I'm saying. No stimulus, no distractions, no noise, no nothing, just you in the dark, alone, welcoming the struggle with God. In my experience, that's where God shows up. I don't believe it's any accident that my big conversion moment happened at a time in which I was outside of data range on my phone. I am convinced that that was part of it. The Holy Land was big, but I was outside of Sprint's range. Like, that was bigger. You know what I mean? Like, that's the kind of thing I'm saying. We're so unaccustomed to being undistracted. That seems to be where God shows up. The second thing I love about this um, passage, I find such poetry in it, is Jacob's insistence on being blessed. Give me your blessing. If you have any history with Jacob, you've been following this series, you know that's all he's ever wanted was his father's blessing. All he's ever wanted was approval, affirmation. All he's ever wanted was to be accepted, was to be blessed. And he struggled and fought and scratched and clawed for all these other blessings and all this other assurance, all this other affirmation from a pretty girl, from my dad, from my mom, from my brother. I'll take whatever I can, even though it's not mine, because I need to be blessed and fill this hole in my heart. And none of those little blessings ever satisfied. He still wanted a blessing because this blessing he's struggling for now is the one he always wanted. It's the one he needed all along. It's a beautiful moment. But maybe what's most profound is what's happening here with the name Jacob. Remember what Jacob means, right? Anyone? Deceiver. Liar. Right. That's important here. Um, it doesn't mean literally deceiver. It, if you remember how Jacob was born, he was a twin, and so he came out grasping the heel of his twin brother, and Jacob literally means one who grasped the heel, and it was a euphemism in Hebrew that means the one who grasps the heel is the one who trips you up. It's the one who, who trips you up with, with his lies, with his deceit, and that's why Jacob is called the deceiver, because he grasped the heel. And uh, in this story, just like the one last week when Laban out-Jacobed Jacob, out-deceived the deceiver, here, it's a little lost in English, but in Hebrew, every time you read struggled or wrestled, it's Jacobed. And so, God comes to Jacob and Jacob's with Jacob. God Jacob with Jacob, and Jacob was never the same. God, uh, he, he Jacobed with Jacob and uh, he, he blessed him. Let's, you, you see this again and again. You have Jacobed with God and you have overcome, right? So the poetry in this is that Jacob spent his whole life Jacobing with everyone else. He Jacobed with Esau. He Jacobed with his father Isaac. He Jacobed with his uncle Laban. He Jacobed with his wife Leah, trying to fill this void in his heart. And finally, he's come to Jacob with God. And because he's finally come and Jacobed with God, he's discovered his true identity there, and God changes his name from Jacob, which was a derogatory name. Sorry to any Jacobs in the house. It's not anymore. But it was then to Israel, which is the first time this word appears in Scripture. First of many. Before it was a nation, before it was a people, it was a man. 
with a new name. Israel means one who struggles with God or one who Jacobs with God. Okay? And this, I think, is the most important lesson here for us today because Jacob, up to this point, believed in God, but he didn't struggle with God. Believing in God, guys, won't get you very far. Believing in God isn't even that big of a deal. Jesus' brother James said in James chapter 2, verse 19, that even the demons of hell believe in God, and they shudder. So congratulations. If you believe in God, you're on par with the demons. It's not a big deal to believe in God. The more important part is struggling with God, wrestling with him, engaging with him, trusting him. Most of us, including me, I'm not like just judging others. Like this is me too. I believe in God most days as this uh, supernatural idea, (laughs) abstract in the sky, and I struggle with people. I believe in you, God. I kind of like you, God. But you, on the other hand, you know, like, I struggle here, and I believe here. Because people, I have found, frequently annoy me. Like, they frequently refuse to cooperate with my plans for them. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) I honestly think I think the best thoughts. And I think everyone should think the thoughts that I think. And if you would just get along and cooperate with what I'm trying to do to you, your worldview would change, our problems would go away, and and your life would be better. But people just refuse. And they get in our way, and they get on our nerves, and then you get on Twitter and it's just a disaster. And they use the... The fast lane to do left-hand turns instead of the center lane, Houston, that center lane with the two little arrows in it, that's where you turn left. And, and I sit behind somebody and I just lay on my horn. Arr! Does that ever make you happy? Does that ever satisfy you? Does that human struggle ever feel good beyond just the three seconds when you're like, Arr! no. It feels good for about as long as it takes for you to go, eh, and then you turn around them, and you look back at them, and they go to your church. Oh. <laughs> Dang. How many times am I going to learn that lesson? <laughs> this church would be huge if I drove better. <laughs> anyway, I don't know how many members I've lost. It never works, doesn't work for them, doesn't work for me. I've never once sped around somebody who didn't use the turning lane, laying on my horn, looking at them funny, and then had them go, I'm sorry, you're right, I'm so sorry, I get it now. Next time, I'll do it the right way. I'm never, that's never happened. <laughs> but it doesn't stop me from struggling, y'all. I'm German, I'm stubborn, I'm quick to anger, I'm, I hold on to my ideas, 
I just think everybody should believe what I believe in. And I, that hard-headedness is just in me. I think Jacob was a lot the same way. His stubbornness his whole life plagued him. His hard-headedness plagued him. And, and I, I go into my struggles with people with that stubbornness in my mind. And, and, and you know, I, I just get upset. I get so upset. I get upset to the point of being enraged with people who are judgmental, with people who are dismissive of people who aren't like them. You know, I get, I get so angry about people who marginalize people who aren't like them. And then I wake up and I realize that I'm marginalizing them the way that, that I'm mad at them for marginalizing other people. I get so angry though. And if you've been following me online at all lately or my devotionals or anything, you know I've been a little wrapped around this toxic masculinity uh, axle for a couple of weeks and because it's deep in me now. I hate the phrase toxic masculinity. I don't think it does our boys and men any kind of good service. I don't think we're casting an aspirational vision for who they can become as boys and men if all they ever hear about masculinity is that it's toxic. And so I have so much rage in me about toxic masculinity and I struggle with people who use it and then I struggle with people who use it for so long that I wind up becoming angry and bitter and a bully just like they said I was when they used the phrase toxic masculinity in the first place. Dang it, I hate being a hypocrite. It's frustrating to be so wrong so much of the time. And yet that's where our struggles with each other get us. We fight the fights that don't need to be fought so we can feel like a winner in the short term. But how much is lost? At what cost are we right? That's why it's important to struggle with God. The most mysterious part of the passage isn't the struggle. (laughs) The most mysterious part of this passage is that God let Jacob win. touched his hip and broke it basically. But he didn't have the power to overcome this fool Jacob. Of course he did. This demonstrates one of the most mysterious concepts in all of scripture. The self-restraint of an all-powerful God. A God who is willing to surrender defeat in the moment for the purpose of giving us the victory for eternity. This, this is grace. Genesis 32 isn't some old, cryptic, Old Testament passage about some weird wrestling match. It is a precursor, a foreshadowing of the gospel. It is full of grace. An all-powerful God who comes down and engages in a struggle with a person like Jacob, a sinner like Jacob, and allows him to overcome God could have destroyed him. Even Jacob knows it at the end of the passage. He calls the place he's in Peniel because he saw God face to face and he lived to tell the tale. Even Jacob didn't expect to survive that encounter. But God in his love for Jacob surrendered so that Jacob could prevail. God in his grace and mercy laid down that Jacob could get up, even though he walked with a limp and would never be the same, he lived to see another day. And next week we'll hear about how he and his brother were reconciled. Listen, this is the gospel. This is a foreshadowing of the most important event in the history of the world. God coming down 
to earth, to wrestle with people, to surrender to the cross, to die so I could live, to lose so we could gain. This is not like any God you've ever heard of before. This might not even be like the God you thought was in the Bible, but it's the only God who's here. Not a God who comes proclaiming victory. Not a God who came to the earth with a stick in his hand to beat us up with it. A God who came with a cross, with surrender, to die so we could live. How many relationships have been lost or, at, or are at risk of being lost right now because two people are so committed to the struggle they're in that they're going to be right, dang it. I'm going to be right. I'm going to prove her wrong. I'm going to prove him wrong. Listen, you might have every argument in the book. You might have every point. You might actually win that argument on the merits of the case. But who cares? That stalemate you in, where's it going? Where does it end? Are you willing to risk the long-term health of this relationship, this marriage, your connection to your child, your connection to your parent, just for the sake of being right? When you struggle with God, you learn to restrain yourself as he does too. You learn to say no to this struggle. I don't need to win it. I surrender. You win. It's fine. I love you. I bless you. can't really do that until God shows you how. So I want to encourage you right now as we are one week out from a baptism Sunday of the story to take seriously this concept of sitting in stillness and silence with God, welcoming the struggle, going to the mat in your heart with your creator, struggling with him as Jacob did, asking him questions as Jacob did, seeking his blessing as Jacob did. A lot of people try to struggle with God, but then you come across a verse you don't understand, and you're like, I'm out. It's too confusing. Or a preacher says something you don't like, and you're like, I'm out. Christians are dumb. Or, you know, something happens, and there's a little roadblock, and you stop the struggle. Don't stop. Hold on. Cling to him. Seek his heart. Seek his blessing. Ask your questions. He can take it. He made you stubborn for a reason. Not for all these little squabbles you're in, but to struggle with him. When you struggle with him and you seek his blessing, you realize that's what you've been after all along. And every relationship changes. You don't need to win anymore because the God of all creation lost for you. And you're willing to lose for others as well. You pray with me. Jesus, thank you for your grace and your love toward us. When we experience it, it truly is a life-changing thing. God, fill us with your grace and humility. Free us from the need to win every fight, to have all the right arguments, to prove ourselves to our brothers and sisters, to our neighbors, to the world. Help us to struggle with you and you alone. And in so doing, to learn how deep your love is for us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.